This New America NYC event took place on October 7th, 2015, and is titled Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in the Digital Age, and features Sherry Turkle, author of Reclaiming Conversation, and Amanda Hess, staff writer with Slate. So when Future Tense asked me to do this, um, I said, yes, absolutely. I will come talk with Sherry <laughs> on the stage. And then I was like, so what do you want us to do? And they were like, oh, just have like an unstructured conversation. And I was like, it's what? Like Sherry does, you know. <laughs> yeah. like Sherry says you should do. Right. I was like, well, yeah, what is that? Like, what should we do? Um, and then I read your book. And like, to be, I want to like lay the terms out. I think I probably played like 300 levels of Candy Crush in the time that I read your book. Um, <laughs> But I did finish it, and I loved it. While you were reading? Um, I mean, not literally while I was reading, but I have, okay, like, there were some times when I was reading the book, and then I, <laughs> and then I played a level in the, <laughs> in the middle reading. I liked, I liked to kind of write a chapter and watch an episode of Mad Men. Right. Yeah. Except I didn't write a chapter. I, just, I maybe read a chapter. <laughs> um, so uh, you've been writing about this stuff for a long time. Um, in the book, you say about 30 years. Can you tell me when the, the point was when you were like, uh-oh? Yes. Um, so for those of you who haven't been following these closely, it's Amanda. I, um, I came to MIT in 1976. And uh, I, I basically uh, had been studying French psychoanalysis before, uh, and Jacques Lacan, and uh, why the French were not interested in psychoanalysis until Jacques Lacan put it in a form where they would fall in love with psychoanalysis. Studying that kind of intellectual history stuff. And um, I got a job at MIT uh, because this work on psychoanalysis and culture seemed for MIT to be in the area of sort of the sociology of science and, and, and that was really great. And I hit MIT just at the point when um, personal computers were starting to come into the culture. And I saw um, people connecting with these computers and I, I thought of them as a second self because people were so, you know, had such a sort of intense relationship with their machines. And so I followed that story really for decades and decades through several books and was very positive about it. I was positive about this aspect of seeing your identity in the machine. I was positive about the internet and creating avatars and seeing your identity through avatars. And then I met two things that were uh-oh moments. And the two things show up in Alone Together, and then essentially they're the, they're the centerpiece of um, what troubles me in this book on conversation. And the two things are, we have a technology that is always on and always on you, where we can interrupt each other to go to the phone at any time, interrupting the conversation with the people we're with in order to go someplace else. And I found that, you know, the way that people were using that really was different and, and in some ways gave people a possibility that, that was disturbing. 
And the second thing were sociable robots, were a new kind of doll, a new kind of robotics that pretended to love you. So just, re just a little bit before coming here for the launch of my book, I was interviewed by the New York Times for that piece on Hello Barbie, which is a doll that says, hi, my name is Barbie, I have a sister, I really don't like her, I'm kind of jealous of her. Do you have a sister? Are you jealous of your sister? Let's talk about how we hate our sisters. <laughs> In other words, it pretends to have a life, it pretends to have the arc of a human life, and it pretends to want to relate to you as though it could empathize with you. It's this pretend empathy. And so the two uh-oh moments were genuinely watching people deal with new kinds of technology that as a psychologist, I thought interfered with, with how people create on, you know, empathic connection with each other, first by interrupting conversation, and the other by getting people into pretend conversation. And that's my uh-oh, and both of those technologies show up as, may, as big actors in, in my book on conversation, because the final chapter of, of Reclaiming Conversation is a chapter called, What Do We Forget When We Talk to Machines? And we forget that what a conversation is. Um, I got the sense that you uh, did most of your research for the book um, in conversations with people in person. Yes. Um, oh. Was that difficult? Because many of the people you're talking to are teenagers. They're young yes. adults. They're people who are <laughs> probably Don't want to talk. <laughs> who are suffering most from you know lack of understanding about how to have a conversation. Yes. So in my acknowledgments, I say I, you know I, I have to make a special acknowledgement this time because I'm talking here to people who, when I said I wanted to talk to them, the first thing they did was to take out an iPad and say that they would send me an email. <laughs> so, uh, and that I had to say no, I, what I was thinking of was kind of a sit down. And, um, um, and how much I really especially appreciated the, the effort that went into that. Um, you know, I think that basically, uh, you know, to be in, in seriousness, that people haven't forgotten how to talk. People find it hard. Because as one person I interviewed said, when I said, you know, what's wrong with conversation? He said, conversation? What's wrong with conversation? I'll tell you what's wrong with conversation. It takes place in real time, and you can't control what you're going to say. We like to be able to edit what we say. We like to pretend that we're perfect. Uh, and conversation gives us that fantasy that we can pretend that we're perfect and get it right. Um, and we like that fantasy that we can time shift and do it when we are free, uh, you know, edited conversation, online conversation. And my students don't want to see me in person for office hours because they tell me that they want to write me the perfect email and have me write them the perfect email back. And, you know, I, I, for the launch of my book, I, I had a, one of the people who came to the, to the uh, little party was a professor who was my most important professor many years ago. And what made him my most important professor is that he talked to me. He made me feel that I could do it. He made me feel special and important, and he had time to listen to me. 
wasn't because I wrote him a perfect email and he gave me perfect information back. So, you know, we're missing out and our students are missing out when, they, when, when that's their model, this transactional model of what a real conversation is. So I think that when you actually sit down with someone and give them the experience of a conversation, you know, people were willing to open up. Yeah, it seemed like some of the people that you talked to um, felt grateful to be in conversation with you. Yeah. Um, there are some young people you talked to in the book who, um, and this was the most fascinating thing to me, because uh, I think the narrative that we hear a lot about technology is that this is a millennial problem, this is a problem for young people, they are like ruining society with their phones, and when you talk to the young people, uh, what many of them said to you was, um, my mom won't get off her phone. She says that there are no phones at dinner, but she's constantly looking at it. Or um, my dad doesn't talk to me, um, and he wants to have all of our conversations over text. Um, and then uh, there's this sort of strange uh, twisting of that narrative that happens where uh, the adults say, um, I'm scared of the kids because they understand how to use this technology and I don't want to be left behind. I don't want to be rendered irrelevant. And so that is why I keep up on the phone. It, and there are just so many, so many justifications, personal justifications that people have. Did you find that there was a reason that you think is most central or compelling to why people are on their phones all the time? Well, our phones make us three promises, like gifts from a benevolent fairy, that we will always be heard, that we can be wherever we want to be, and that we'll never be bored. And given those three promises, most people are like, I want that. I mean, that, that's, an, that's amazing. And now it's socially acceptable to accept those promises. I mean, it used to be that there would be some shunning if you did that, and now 89% of Americans say that in their last social interaction, they took out a phone during the social interaction while they were with people. And then 82% of adults say that doing that deteriorated the conversation they were in. So we do this thing. We know it's not good for us. We do it anyway. It's socially acceptable. But the reason we do it is because it makes us feel good. There's this incredible gratification from these three gifts, including, and I just want to come back to it for a second, this idea that you'll never have to be bored. Because I think this is very important to pause on this. I mean, boredom is really your imagination. It's your mind telling you that it's an opportunity to stop and think and let your imagination go someplace. And the idea that a generation grows up thinking it never has to be bored is not good. Um, you know, neurologically, so that's one way to answer the question. And there are two, there's two other ways to answer the question. The other way to answer the question is to say what one student who, I, who was texting in my class, and it was a class on memoir, so the, the students in the class were were talking about their childhood sexual abuse. They were talking about you know, being poor and sleeping in cars, growing up sleeping in cars. And she came to me during her office hour to say, I'm really upset that I'm texting in your class. 
And I said, well, why are you doing it? And she said, I want to know who wants me. I want to know who's reaching out to me. So that's the reason we're drawn to our phones. It's like you just want to know who wants you. And then the third level, so you have the, th the three gifts of the fairies, you have you want to know who wants you, which is a deeply emotional level. And then, as the work of someone like Nicholas Carr so brilliantly points out, um, there's a neurological level. That when you're on Google, every time you do a Google search, your brain is responding as though it's it, with the sort of serotonin and dopamine and sort of neuro, neurotransmitters as though you were in the wild and found a, you know, a, an animal in the, in, the, in the seeking and hunting and seeking and hunting and gathering mode. It's social, it's stimulating, and it gives you a shot of neurotransmitter. So you're actually being rewarded neurochemically for a Google search. So all of these things are happening to keep us at a technology to which we're extraordinarily vulnerable. And the trick is to say, is to not get kind of overwhelmed by that vulnerability and start talking about addiction, which I think is a real dead end, because we just have to live with this technology, it's not going away, and find ways to design around our vulnerability so we can live better lives with our phones. And that's kind of where the, the book took me. There's another justification that some people in your book tell you, which is not that I am texting all the time for myself. It's because I've gotten to the point where all of my friends and my parents and my loved ones expect me to be constantly available. And if I don't respond, um, like for example, my best friend lives in another city. And if she hasn't seen me online for like a few days or if I haven't like responded to her text um, very quickly, she'll text me and say, you dead? Just to make sure that I'm not dead. Um, and that's kind of a joke, but it's also kind of not a joke. Um, and so I think, at least for me, like I'm a big fan of this justification because I feel this pressure to be online, you know, kind of for my friends and from my family, but mostly for my job. Um, and I feel like I can't, I can't get out of it. Um, and then, of course, you know, because the phone is this glistening little bundle of different things, I go on my phone for work, and then I go and play Candy Crush also. Um, and I don't know what to, to do about that. I feel like our entire, you know, uh, work system, I kept thinking, the word I kept thinking in my head when I was reading your book was capitalism, capitalism, capitalism. How do I, you know, tell my boss that I am not going to reply to their emails when there's another person who wants my job who will certainly do that at any time that they that they ask? Well, I think we're. Do you want me to share it? I mean, you know, I I, I really think. Not to solve my. I was, personal. but I that that's why I I think this is a conversation we need to have because uh, I visited one. Uh, there's one chapter that's about work in which there's a long case study of a, of a high-tech company, a software company, that has the perfect size table for conversation. They had somebody come and study what size table is the best size table for conversation. So it turns out that it has to be small enough that you can have 
a one conversation around it if you want, but big enough that you can have two conversations that people don't feel pressure to be in one conversation. If they're new, they feel they can sit down and not have to know anybody at the table. They can just sit alone. They did studies on how long the cafeteria line should be to maximize conversation while you're standing on the cafeteria line, but not get annoyed that you're too long at the cafeteria line. So you want to maximize conversation at the cafeteria line, but not get sort of annoyed that you're standing there too long. They did, and so that cafeteria wait is exactly three and a half minutes. So they did all of this work, and all of the, I mean, the company is geared towards maximizing conversation, but nobody talks there. And the, I mean, I went there, and actually, and I went to, and they have micro kitchens. This is the best. They have micro kitchens with these cappuccino things and stuff, so that maximizing conversation in all the little pods where people work. So I went into one of the little micro kitchens. I love cappuccino, and I <coughs> pour myself a cappuccino, and I say something to somebody, and he says, you must be new here. <laughs> and I say, why? And he says, people just take food and go back to their desk. And I began to ask, so why isn't anyone talking? And the reason is exactly what you're pointing to, which is the highest value in this company is that everybody be always online. That when you're on the messaging system in this company, you have your little green heart, which shows that you're always online, be kind of pulsing. So nobody's going to talk. As one person said, we're not being paid to have conversations. The whole place is set up for conversation. But as, as long as you know that the company culture is not about conversation, all of the yoga and meditation and mindfulness and cafeteria trays and cafeteria lines and cafeteria table sizes, it's not going to make any difference. It's just going to be amenities if you have a boss with those values. So that has to start, this culture change, this belief that conversation is good for productivity, which all of the research shows, this is brilliant stuff by Ben Weber, which really is, people are wearing sociometric badges that measure how much conversation and what kind of conversation they're having. And it shows that the more conversation, the more productive the worker. The more people in their work groups talk together, the more productive they are. So we know that, that we know that conversation is good for the bottom line, and yet we create work environments that stifle conversation. We know that taking time off and not being constantly responding is good for your mental health, your conversations with friends and family, your, ultimately your productivity, and yet, as you say, you're worried that somebody will take your job if, you don't, if you're not always on. So I think this is something that, that is, it, it has to be dealt with on the level of the individual, but it also has to be dealt with on the level of companies who know that conversation is good for productivity, but have to, be, have to really start to actually you know, live that as a way of corporate life. But I think it's starting. I think that the tip of the iceberg is this whole mindfulness movement in corporate life and sort of getting people into this mindfulness. I think it's just the, the first step of people realizing the importance of conversation. I think you're, you're going to start to see it happening because at the top, really in the C-suite, people are, people are not on their email all day. 
They are not living that kind of life. They are taking time for conversation. So I think that I'm, I sort of am in a hopeful place that um, the corporate culture is going to uh, is going to change. And as for people, I mean, you asked so many questions in your questions, but as for this feeling that young people have that they live in a state of emergency and that their friends expect them to be there, I think we're going to again have to see a culture shift where you know we we let the lag time be a little bit longer in terms of how much we need to reassure our friends. I hope you're right about the mindfulness stuff. Um, in some way, okay, so one of my uh, problems with the solutions yeah. is that I don't want to do them either. <laughs> so there's this one solution that you talk about um, that uh, company... You don't want to do my solutions. Um, I don't want to go to pre-work breakfast. Do you want to talk about what that is? Where they, um, they have breakfast meetings in the morning um, at one company, uh, and they find, and I'm not sure how long it takes, but that it increases productivity later. But I don't want to have breakfast with my coworkers. I want to have breakfast by myself in my house. And I especially, you know, I don't have kids, but I assume if I did, I really don't want to have breakfast with my coworkers. You know what I mean? And so I feel like those things, they, you don't want it's to gonna talk. It's going to be hard. <laughs> I'm talking right now. It's going to, I just feel like it's a, it's a tough sell, some of the stuff, because it feels like, this is what it feels like. It feels like something that is presented as something that's going to make the rest of the stuff better. But what I think in my mind is, that's more work for me, and what if the other stuff doesn't go away? I'm still going to have to answer that email, but now I also have to have breakfast with them. <laughs> well, I should explain what breakfast is. In one company, so I, give, I, do, I give these case studies and all these companies and how they try to bring conversation into their business. So one, one CEO uh, did a study of his company that if he wanted to see anybody in his company, he, he, there was no time to see anybody because everybody was completely booked up and completely spending all their time on their email, and he ha there was no time for him to see anybody. And so he decided that he would just have, once a week, a pre-work breakfast that was just talk, where people, no agenda, people just came to talk. And they found it just sort of revitalized the company, cut out so much email, cut out so much nonsense, the, the time slots opened up, and every, basically everything worked better, and the, I mean, they made more money, people were happier, employees had, I mean, everything was good. And I think your point is fair, that from the point of view of an employee, maybe I'll still have a lot of email, and now I have to go to breakfast. I think you just have to give it a try. I will try, I have to say that I usually don't even eat breakfast, so maybe I should try, <laughs> maybe I could try that. Um, I think one of the other problems is that the people who are making this technology that is taking over our lives and our work lives and everything are also now offering solutions to these problems that they created for us. So um, do you guys know what Slack is? Slack is a, um, a work, if you're not familiar, it's a work messaging system. Um, so it's like a chat room for you and your coworkers. Um, and uh, when I started at Slate, by the way, love my job at Slate. And also, when I started, um, you know, uh, my boss asked me how everything was going, and my first response was, there's too much email, there's so much email. And he said, 
um, that is what everyone says. Everyone is consumed by the email, and there's too much of it. But it also creates like great you know, story ideas, and it helps in assigning things, and we don't know what to do. And then Slack was like, why don't you use me instead? Uh, so what happened was we all installed Slack on our computers, uh, and it did help with some things. So uh, cut down on some emails. Now Slack is, you know, I get a message instantly, and it pops up on my computer, and it scrolls down, and it's easier for me to sort of like get rid of it. I don't have to like delete all of it. There's no spam in there. But the email hasn't stopped. So now there's Have email Slack and, and Slack. Slack. And now there are more Slack messages than there ever were emails. And it's like releasing the mongoose to like solve the snake problem. Um, but for Slack, you know, they, are, they, they say that they are solving like one of the problems that you're talking about. You know, this well. reminds me of in this crisis, you know, I think there's a crisis on empathy and I'm, you know, I'm really reporting uh, the work of many other psychologists who studied empathy and who've found these startling statistics about the problems with empathy culturally and particularly among young people today. So I studied it too, but I'm not the only person who's pointing to this. And I went to a conference where there was a great consensus about this empathy issue. And actually, one of the great psychologists who did the study that showed the 40% decline in all markers for empathy among college students over the past 20 years, the next project she turned her attention to after doing that was to write empathy apps for the Mac, for the iPhone. And at this conference, there was discussion of her work on the empathy apps, and many other psychologists who were also turning, in my view, to a kind of slack version of what to do to solve the empathy problem is to create empathy apps. And I think there's a real, you know, I wrote a book about conversation. That's really where you began, you know, why conversation? And I'll tell you why conversation is because you don't, we don't need to build anything to get started. We have everything we need, we have each other. And I'm very, I would love in the discussion period to hear you know, people's views. I mean, I just have this gut feeling that we don't want to add apps to solve the empathy issue. Just like, you know, it's putting, it's putting this problem in the hands of programmers where really we should just kind of talk. We, we know what, how empathy grows. It grows by talking to each other. Why are we taking out our phones to tutor us in empathy? So I, I mean, I, I really relate to, I mean, I really relate to what you're saying, that, you know, that, that making new technologies to solve the problems of technology is always a, a kind of dicey proposition. New kinds of email to solve the old email. So I'm, I'm actually suggesting a kind of radical break here, is that we have some issues that have come up about technology, and you don't solve it with creating a doll that will teach your child empathy, and you don't solve it by creating an app that will tutor you in empathy. You create it by turning to the person next to you and saying, let's talk. Um. And they were definitely supposed to clap definitely on that. <laughs> I was supposed to leave them. <laughs>
That was definitely the line in the book. <laughs> Edit it in. Yeah. On my iPhone later. Um, how? So the book is focused on people who use technology. Is is part of the problem the people who make technology, um, and the pretty you know narrow group of people that is. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, the question is, if the technology was, had been made by different people, would it have come out a whole lot different? And it's intriguing because, you know, I think that when people invented, you know, the, Steve Jobs, for example, I mean, to just take him as an example, he, in his family, no iPhones were allowed at the dinner table. His kids were not allowed to have tablets. Uh, he was very not into technology for his children. Uh, very much into meditation, conversation. Uh, he was not, you know, he was not pushing technology as something, you know, for, for that, that would supplant conversation and, and being out in nature when it came to kids. So his values as a human being were not to use this object, these beautiful, magnificent objects, to take people away from conversation. It is not though, you know, it's not as though he said, oh, let me create an object that will have that effect. These objects had that effect because we are vulnerable in certain ways to these objects. So I, you know, even though I would have to say that most of the, you know, probably most of the people who work in, in, the, in the IT industry are not, were not, you know, focused on conversation as they're high, you know, it's not like they're big conversation people and big, I don't want to really blame them. I just don't think that's the, you know, that's the motivation. This was not a, a plot. This is really the unintended effects of a highly seductive technology and one to which we're vulnerable in very particular ways. And I think we had to kind of play it out and see the ways in which we were vulnerable. I mean, who, th who would have thought when these beautiful objects were put in your hand that the way we would use them would be to say, stop, I just want to check something. I mean, I, that wouldn't have occurred to me in a million years. And yet, 10 times a day, somebody goes to me, stop, I just want to check something. People who were above me in station, you know, kind of in sort of like famousness and, and power and position, and people who were below me in famousness and power and money and station. I said, go, say to me, stop. I just want to check something. And I remember the first time people started doing this, one of my students said to me, when people do that, I feel like a tape recorder that's being put on pause. I mean, what's this, what's this thing? And now we do that to each other all the time. You know, my, my daughter is 24. She works at LinkedIn. God's way of sending a message. <laughs> God's way of sending a message to me. Um, and, and, you know, and she loves me. You know, she loves, you know, she loves me. And yet, it is the most natural, it is in her vocabulary of things you do in a loving conversation to just make, you know, just to make that gesture. So that was not in the sort of master plan of how people would adopt this technology. So I think it's kind of natural that this, these beautiful objects came into our lives. We understand now that we're vulnerable to them in very particular ways. I've tried my work to sort of unpack a little bit how we're vulnerable. I think it took us a little time to sort of see, oh my God, we're sort of vulnerable. Oh my God, I see what it's kind of doing. Costs are high. I think the costs are really high. 
And now we're saying we have to design around this vulnerability. We have to design around this vulnerability. And we can do that. There, there are things, now you don't happen to like breakfast, feeling your pain. There are other, we'll have other things for you to do, but, but we have to design around our vulnerability to these objects. And I think it can just be something that we, you know, we take conversation and empathy and getting back to connection with each other as, as sort of that's our first value. And then we go from there about how we have to live our lives and use these objects. But I don't really think that if you'd, if you'd had a very different cast of characters, and then I think you can design the phones now, in retrospect, you can design the phones to make that a little bit easier to do. And I know a lot of people in, 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 in the IT industry who are now, in retrospect, thinking about how to design the phones to make that easier. And that's a very interesting design problem. To make the phones not grab you and keep you, but let you do your job and then kind of quiet so that you can then come back to them and do your next job, but not have the goal of kind of keeping you at them. And that, that's something to think about if we want that. Um, I'm going to open it up for questions in a second. Uh, but first, does that answer your? Yeah. Um, I, the, this um, is a bit of a, a tone shift, but uh, there are some parts of your book a few, where you talk about your relationship to technology. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about like how you do it. Like what apps do you have on your phone? Do you have a phone that has apps? And oh. like how do you how do you manage all of this stuff? I have everything. <laughs> I I I I love beautiful technology. I mean how I mean I just so I have an I mean I have a I have an iPhone six. Uh, I have the, the littler one, not the bigger one. Um, and I have a MacBook Air, and the reason I have a MacBook Air is that I'm, I'm a writer, and I, I love to use it. it. It is the for me, it's the perfect writing instrument, and I love to have a real keyboard. So I, I want I don't want a, a watch call it a tablet of any sort with anything. Right? And I want a real keyboard, and so I have the smallest MacBook Air. So I write everything, including my book. You know, my daughter is like carrying around this giant retinal display, you know, this big, she looks at this tie, the tie, like an 11 inch, she says, you're writing your book on a, an 11 inch, you know, she's like crazy. That's really all I have is an 11 inch screen. I write everything on it because it just goes every place with me. I don't have anything else except this MacBook Air that goes every place with me. I don't buy a pocketbook. I love beautiful, um, how would I say? leather goods, and, um, and sort of, you know, I, I, and I, I, I don't buy a, a beautiful pocketbook unless it can fit my 11-inch MacBook Air. So that, you know, limits me in some areas. But I, 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 I those are the two technologies that, you know, are really sort of always with me. And I, I, have, I have apps. Um, I don't enjoy games. I will say the one thing that I kind of know, I don't, but I don't like any games. Chess makes me anxious because it's like an area of life that I feel like you have to be, I should be good at this. You're like, you know, you're like smart, you should be good at this. I don't want to be good at anything else. I feel like I have enough 
that I'm you good don't at. You have to be good at Candy Crush. Right. It's I, like I don't want slash. anything. I don't. I really. I think I rebel against games because I have this secret feeling that I, that that, that there is skill involved, and I, I see people get good at them, and I, I don't want to get good. I don't want the pressure to get good at games. So I really do avoid games of all sorts, and I just include a computer. I mean, so I've never been interested in games. So I, th I think games is the one thing that, but that's temperamental. But I use my computer to um, watch, um, you know, what used to be called must-see TV. I mean, I just watch every, on my little, I'll watch it on my tiny phone. I'll watch reruns of Mad Men on my, on my phone. On my <laughs> I love to listen to what used to be called books on tape, but now, of course, it's audible. I just, just, I uh, actually, I will sit in the parking lot at MIT listening to a book, and people will like come up to me and ask if like I'm having like a stroke or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> because I, the, my, the parking lot is like right in front of the building, and it'll be like snowing, and I don't want to go in and, you know, wearing earphones because that would like, in my image, is like I'm open to conversation. So, but I cannot not. So it's kind of like I have to stay in the car listening to the. So I, I, I'm a big listener to. I would say my the things that when you say what are your technology things is, I, I love to write on my phone. On, on, no, I love to write on my air. I love to listen to books uh, on my phone. Um, and I'm a big email person. Uh, I, I, you know, there are many people in this audience who know that. You know, we just have to, as I say, act with intention. My, my favorite line in my book is, I'll end with this, is that every technology makes us confront our human values, which is a good thing because it makes us ask what they are. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.